The four Sundays of Advent, we are walking together through the Old Testament book of Ruth, one chapter at a time. And so we introduced this uh, short but powerful book uh, last Sunday. And the book of Ruth is ultimately interested in the story of God's covenant love for his people and how he rescues them from spiritual poverty by sending his anointed to redeem them. That's the big, broad story, indeed, of the Bible. And it is the story that Ruth is interested in telling. And you can see the sort of corporate and universal scope of uh, the book's intent by the way it begins and the way it ends. It begins with the words, in the days when the judges ruled. And of course, we know that that is a period of time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is how the book of Judges describes that period of time. And it ends with a ten-generation genealogy culminating in King David. And so the book begins where there is no king and there is moral chaos, there is spiritual unfaithfulness, and it ends with the promise of a king on the throne. Indeed, the anointed one that God would place on the throne for Israel. And the way that it tells that grand story is by zooming way in on the intimate story of a lonely Hebrew widow, bereaved of her husband and her two sons and despairing of any hope for her future. How God demonstrates personal loving kindness to Naomi in this short book is both an example of his covenant faithfulness to his people and the means by which he will secure their redemption. So there is both a model here. We see the ways of Yahweh as he lovingly provides for and sustains and restores hope to one particularly embattled and embittered uh, widow in Israel. And we see the tangible steps that he is taking in his kind providence to provide for the salvation of his people as a whole. So a quick review of chapter one that we saw last week. Naomi had left the promised land of Canaan with her husband and two sons to live in the land of Moab to the east due to a famine in Judah. Uh, her husband and her two sons died while they were in Moab during their 10-year stay. Her sons had married uh, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And we were told in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the Lord visited his people and provided food. And so Naomi decided to return home. And as she returns or begins her journey home, Orpah remains in Moab. Uh, returning presumably to her mother's house. But Ruth, we're told, clung to Naomi, refusing to leave her side. And so we saw Ruth pledging covenant faithfulness to Naomi, essentially becoming an Israelite, uh, choosing life among her people, uh, adopting the, the worship of Yahweh, and pledging undying devotion to her. And then when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem at the end of the chapter, uh, she instructs the, the Bethlehemite women to no longer call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but instead to call her Mara, meaning bitter. 
because the Lord has dealt bitterly with her and taken everything away from her. That is her interpretation of the bitter providences in her life. God is against me. God has turned his hand against me. He has taken everything from me. So call me bitter. She is the picture of despair as chapter 1 ends. But chapter 1 actually concludes on a subtle note of hope because they had arrived at the beginning of barley harvest, which sets the stage for what comes next. Now, the events of chapter 2, the part of the story we'll consider today, uh, in, in these events, we see two vulnerable people, Ruth and Naomi, finding refuge under God's wings. I'm borrowing that language from Boaz down in verse 12, and we'll see that in a few minutes. Particularly, there are three ways that the vulnerable find refuge in Yahweh. And we'll take these one at a time as the scene unfolds. But we see refuge in God's kind providence, in God's abundant provision, and in God's gracious pursuit. So let's, I'll read for you the first seven verses, and we'll see these vulnerable women find refuge in God's kind providence. Verses one through seven of chapter two. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So in these seven verses, we find the kind providence of God that provides a shelter, that provides refuge for the vulnerable widow, Ruth. First thing to notice is in the very first verse, Naomi had a relative. This is information that we were not given in chapter 1. Indeed, perhaps it's information that Naomi herself had kind of forgotten about in her grief. Because she even told Ruth and Orpah it would be a lot easier for you to find a husband if you stay in Moab. Maybe she's kind of forgotten that there is this relative of hers uh, back in Bethlehem, Boaz. And there is uh, an undeniable touch here of God's provision, of God's providence in this relative. We're told that uh, Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech is the husband of Naomi who passed away while she was in Moab. And so he belongs to the family of Elimelech. We don't know exactly what the relation is. Is this a brother? Is this a cousin? Is this an uncle? We're not exactly sure. Uh, there, is, there does appear to be an age difference between Boaz and Ruth that, that becomes a little clearer later in the story. Uh, at any rate... We are told that he's of the clan of Elimelech, and we know from 1 Chronicles 2 that he's from the tribe of Judah, which, is also, which also bears significance for the coming uh, prophecies and promises that unfold. 
And so he's of the clan of Elimelech. He's of the tribe of Judah. And we're told he is a worthy man. A worthy man, which speaks probably both of his wealth and stature in the land and of his character. Because as we get to know Boaz in the next couple of chapters, we find him to be indeed a man of strong character, a strong, uh, a man who, who worships and honors Yahweh, even down to the details of his life, a man who exhibits the heart of Yahweh to the vulnerable. But we'll see that more clearly in just a few minutes. So there is a relative of Naomi. We'll get to what, why that is significant uh, in, in just a few minutes uh, in the end of this chapter. But remember it. There's a relative. Incidentally, some things we learn about Ruth as the story unfolds in just these few uh, verses. First of all, she, uh, she takes initiative in caring for her mother-in-law. So they're back in Bethlehem, and she says to Naomi, uh, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I find favor. In other words, whoever I find who will let me glean in their field, right? So she doesn't know who that's going to be, but she is ready and willing to go and to put herself in whatever situation will, uh, will lead to their uh, provision and, and food for them to eat. So she asks permission from Naomi to go, and Naomi gives her her blessing. Go, my daughter. Uh, we learn that Ruth is humble. See the way that she approaches the manager of this field in verse 7, the first part of it. Uh, as the man is reporting to Boaz about her, he says, uh, she came to me and said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she's come to the manager of this field and asked for permission to glean from the field. Now, as we'll see in a few minutes, she probably didn't actually need to ask for permission because it was provided for in the very law of God that she would have the right to glean in the fields of the harvesters. But nevertheless, she recognizes her position, not only as a woman, but also as a foreigner. She'll call herself that in just a few verses. And so she comes to the manager and asks humbly for permission to glean in the field. And then we see in that same verse, verse 7, that she is a diligent, hardworking woman. Because he tells Boaz that she has been at it all day long, right? So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And so she's, uh, she's taking initiative and caring for her mother-in-law. She's humble and she's diligent and hardworking. So we find these, uh, these very noble and admirable characteristics in Ruth as she works to find a way to provide food for her and her mother-in-law. Now, the refuge that she and Naomi find under the wings of God's providence are strongly alluded to in verse 5. Excuse me, it's not verse 5. It's in the middle of verse 3. I apologize. So we see the providence of God very plainly in verse 3. It says, she set out and went and gleaned in the field, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. So we've been introduced briefly to Boaz as a relative of Naomi, a worthy man, a man of Elimelech's family, a man from the tribe of Judah. And now we're told she just happened to find herself in the field belonging to this relative of Elimelech, of, of Naomi. And you can almost see the narrator winking here. She just happened to come into the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is the kind of 
chance encounter or serendipitous moment that some people chalk up to coincidence, right? But the author of the book of Ruth, the narrator of this story, knows of no such coincidence, no such happenstance. This is the outworking of God's kind providence that she would be led to glean and that she would go to the field and indeed come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is this relative of Naomi. And we see the providence of God in the fact that Boaz comes into the field and indeed sees Ruth. He could have come at a different time of the day. He might not have checked in at, at, uh, at this particular day with his manager. But he comes to the field, says, from Bethlehem, and he goes to the, the man who's managing the, the harvest. And he says, whose young woman is this? And so Boaz has taken notice of Ruth. And I want you to notice, uh, again, as we come to know Boaz and the kind of man that he is, the first words that he says, indeed the first exchange that he has with any other people in the story, are as he greets his workers, the reapers in the field in verse 4. It says, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. The very first words out of Boaz's mouth in the Bible are words of divine blessing. They're words calling on Yahweh to bring his grace and goodness to his workers. And then the workers respond, Yahweh bless you. This is clearly the way that they relate to each other. Boaz doesn't go, all right, how much have you done? Boaz doesn't go, bring me my portion. Hurry up. You guys are slackers. He says, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. And so we see down again, the details of his life, even how he manages his workers in this field are indicate his godly character. And so Boaz comes into the field where Ruth has happened to find herself gleaning and he takes notice of her and he inquires about her. Whose young woman is this? So God is up to way more in these few verses than Ruth has any clue about. But we can see the pieces starting to come together. Friend, God is meticulously at work in every moment of your life. Down to the goofy little details to bring about his good and redemptive purposes. Listen, Ruth had no plan to meet a nice fella and fall in love when she, uh, when she went out to the field or, or to secure a home and heritage for herself and her family. All she intended to do was find some food so that she and Naomi could eat that day. So she set out to do what needed to be done so that they would have a meal that day. That's all she's doing. That's all she is planning for. But God had bigger things in mind. And so it is with us. You know, it's possible to overplan, to think in too much detail about what you'll do or where you'll live or what you'll drive or how you'll earn money or what you'll wear or uh, how, you'll, how and when you'll find a spouse. It's possible to worry way too much and to think way too hard and to plan in way too much detail how all of these things are going to come about as though there isn't one working all the while on your behalf, who sees way more than you see, and who knows way better than you do what is good and right. Didn't Jesus say something like this? 
In Matthew 6, 31, he says, Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But here's the exhortation. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He knows what you need. And the best way to get what you need is not worrying about how you're going to get what you need. It's to focus on following Jesus and honoring Him. And when you're doing that, He will take care of you. You can take refuge in God's kind providence. David Strain says this, Here is the secret of Christian contentment. You do not need to know about tomorrow and next week and six months from now and ten years from now. You need to know what God would have you do today. Attend to the clear guidance of the scriptures. Study the glory of God and the good of others. Do your duty today and trust the whole weight of tomorrow into the hands of the God who governs all things in sovereign grace for the good of those who love him. So the vulnerable widow takes refuge in God's kind providence. And may we find ourselves resting in that same grace. Verses 8 to 16, we see the vulnerable taking refuge in God's abundant provision. Let's look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her now to understand the grace of god's provision to ruth and naomi in these verses we need to understand two things number one god's law concerning the poor and vulnerable in israel and number two boaz's extraordinary application of that law god commanded israel to accommodate the poor in their harvesting In Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. 
You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This law is reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So the, the harvesting of this barley would be kind of a messy affair. It wasn't as clean as cut the thing, take the stock, and it's all there. Things They're gathering in big armfuls, and things are falling out as they go. And the law essentially is, don't be too careful to get all of your crop. It's let it fall. If some falls out of the bundle, leave it there. He even says, don't go all the way up to the edge of your property. Leave some, I don't know exactly how much, but leave some around the edges that you don't harvest at all. Why? So that the poor and the fatherless and the sojourner among you will have harvest that they can reap for themselves. God's heart for the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the sojourner is codified in law. The Israelite landowners are forbidden from being overly meticulous about getting every last bit of their crop because the gleanings are to be for the poor to gather for themselves. Now, this sounds very un-American, doesn't it? You've got to suck out every last ounce of that, right? You've got to get everything that's coming to you. You've got to work hard, and you've got to make sure that none of it falls to the ground. Everything is for you. I work for this. This is mine. That is the sort of human fallen and perhaps American ethos when it comes to stuff, when it comes to material gathering and possessions, but not so with Yahweh. God says, do not work so hard to get everything for yourself. Intentionally leave behind some crops for the poor and the vulnerable among you to gather and to glean. This is in God's law for his people because it's his heart. His heart is for the poor and the vulnerable and those who have less means by which to provide for themselves. And now consider how Boaz not only follows the letter of the law here, but indeed goes above and beyond it, demonstrating a true heart of generosity and compassion. Here's a few ways we see that. In verse 8, he urges Ruth to continually glean in his field and stay close to the women working there. Not just, okay, you've gleaned enough for today. I think you've had plenty. Go find somebody else's field to glean from tomorrow. Come back. Continue gleaning in my field. Stay near the women who are working and reaping and work in my field. So there's this ongoing invitation. Verse 9, he sees to her physical protection by warning his male workers to leave her alone. Right? I've told them not to touch you. He also invites her to stop and drink from the water drawn by his servants at break times, right? So when there's a need for a break and when the men have drawn water from a well, you get to have some of that. This is a, a generosity, a kindness that's not required. He invites her to lunch, apparently, in the middle of the day. And he provides for her so much food that she is filled and she has leftovers to take home. Surely this is more than what she was owed in the law. And he instructs his workers to be extra sloppy in their harvesting, doesn't he? Leaving more behind than necessary for Ruth to glean. Even letting, taking some out of your bundles and leaving it on the ground so that she can get it. This is overabundant provision. This is more than Boaz owes to Ruth as a sojourner in his field. This is the generosity, the kindness, the abundance of God's grace 
flowing through Boaz to Ruth and by extension to Naomi. Ruth clearly recognizes Boaz's abundant generosity to her. In verse 10, she says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She knows her status. I'm not even an Israelite. I'm from Moab. And you've taken notice of me and you've been kind to me. You have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You have no real obligation to me, and yet here you've treated me with this kindness. But I want you to notice especially the words of blessing that Boaz speaks over Ruth. When she asks why he's taken notice of her, he he tells her he knows about her kindness and sacrifice for Naomi. So the story apparently is well known now in the community. And then he pronounces this beautiful blessing in verse 12, which I think are the theme verses of this chapter and maybe even of the entire book. He says this in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. David Strain says, Boaz resolves not merely to speak a blessing, but to be a blessing. Not merely to be the spokesman of God's covenant mercy, but to be himself the agent of it. So he pronounces this blessing upon her. May may Yahweh repay you. May Yahweh give you grace and abundance and kindness and provision. And then he himself provides it. He himself is generous with what he has been given by the Lord and stewards it for her good. Indeed, Ruth and Naomi find themselves under the shelter of Yahweh's wings because of his abundant provision for them in the generosity of Boaz. As those who bear God's name, we are called to show profound compassion and kindness to the vulnerable in our communities. Mary Wilson Hanna says, socioeconomically vulnerable people ought to find the kindness they seek among God's covenant people. The extent to which Christians have grasped the enormity of God's generosity to them in Christ will be demonstrated in the extent to which they show or fail to show glad, humble generosity to others. Friends, this is the heart of God. It's to care for widows and orphans in their distress. It's to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. It's to provide over abundantly for the vulnerable and the weak. And he calls us to the same kind of love and compassion. May we, as his people, bear his heart in showing tangible care to the at-risk and vulnerable among us. So they found refuge in God's abundant provision. And then finally, verses 17 to 23, they'll find refuge in God's gracious pursuit. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth brings home an enormous amount of barley. Uh, an ephah would be more than would be easy to carry. So she's gleaned so much in the field in this one day that she could barely get it home. And she has leftovers from dinner, right? So she brings all this barley, and Naomi is stunned to see it. And then Ruth also, oh yeah, by the way, here's leftovers from lunch today. I had more than enough, and so I brought this here. And Naomi's response is, whose field did you glean in today? Like, this is an amazing return. This is an amazing yield. And so Ruth reports to Naomi about the kindness of Boaz. The man in whose field I gleaned is named Boaz. And Naomi immediately recognizes the hand of God at work. And she rejoices. She says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, I'm speaking about Yahweh, speaking about the Lord. May he be blessed by Yahweh whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Well, is she so enthusiastic about this just because it was a great return on one day of gleaning? Wow, that much barley? Wow, this leftover food? Praise God, he's not forgotten about us. I think it's more than that. Because the next thing she says is, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. She recognizes by name this relative, a kinsman redeemer. And again, she must have forgotten about him in her grief earlier. We'll talk more about this next week because it comes into uh, the, the details of what it means to be a, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer uh, come into play in the story in chapter 3. But briefly, after the death of a Hebrew man, a Hebrew husband, uh, his closest male relative was to act on behalf of his family concerning matters of financial and material provision to be sure, but including marrying the widow in order to provide for her and indeed to provide an heir, perhaps, if the Lord would grant that, to keep the family name alive. Obviously, that seems a bit strange to us. That's different than the way that we approach marriage and the way that families work together. But in the law of God for Israel, this was a particular provision that God included for the vulnerable and indeed women were more vulnerable in that day and in that culture uh, than they are in our own. And so when a husband died, and particularly if the woman didn't have any sons, it would be the end of that man's family line and her provision would be uh, very uh, at risk and, and uncertain. And so if there was a near relative, a male relative, he was to sort of step in to provide for her, to take care of her, uh, to settle debts that, that, there may, that may have been left behind, uh, and indeed to, to marry her and to provide an heir. And so that is the, 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 the role of a kinsman redeemer. And again, we'll, we'll look more in detail at that next week.
But Naomi recognizes Boaz as a relative. And thus, when she says one of our redeemers, she means this might be the way that Yahweh intends to provide what's been taken. Right? And so as chapter 1 ended, she was all grim and depressed and God has taken everything from me. I left full and I've come back empty. And now she's beginning to see the hand of God at work. Maybe he hasn't forgotten her after all. Indeed, she says he has not forsaken the living or the dead. The dead being her husband and her sons, whose indeed name and family line may continue if indeed God provides a redeemer for them in this way. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. Perhaps that's what's going on in Naomi. As we see the glimmer of hope return to Naomi's heart and her lips return to praising Yahweh, we can see God's gracious pursuit of her all along. His kind providence and his abundant provision are evidences of his pursuing love as he seeks to rekindle Naomi's faltering faith and turn her heart back toward him in worship and in hope once again. God is graciously pursuing Naomi and regaining her hope and trust. And so he pursues each one of us, his children. Jesus said in John 4.23 that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. He is showing himself in 10,000 acts of kind providence and merciful provision, and he's waiting for your heart to turn toward him in faith and worship. Do you see him? Will you turn toward him? Will you allow your heart to be softened to him by his unfailing covenant loyalty to you in Christ? Boaz pronounced a blessing on Ruth that she would be given a full reward by Yahweh under whose wings she had come to take refuge and then he took action on her behalf, effectively becoming the fulfillment of that blessing. His generosity to these vulnerable women became the wings of Yahweh over them. A refuge of help and protection amid their vulnerability. And Boaz's provision for Ruth and Naomi is more than just a fulfillment of the law God had given Israel concerning the harvest. It is, in fact, a picture, a foreshadowing of a provision that would one day be made for God's people that would far outstrip even his remarkable sacrifice. That provision would come when a descendant of Boaz, another man from the tribe of Judah and born in Bethlehem, would gather the guilt and reproach of sinners and carry it upon his back to Calvary and die on a cross in their place. Sisters and brothers, in our sin, we stood vulnerable and poor before a holy God whose glory we had mocked and demeaned by our own rebellion. In our fallenness, we stood weak and helpless, unable to pay our debt and without a claim to God's covenant kindness. And in stunning mercy and unspeakable love, he who was rich became poor for our sake that we through his poverty might become rich. 
Friend, if you haven't yet confessed your sinfulness before God and come to Jesus Christ in faith, you are still standing before him vulnerable and helpless. But he's made provision for you. If you'll trust in Jesus alone for salvation and cling to him by faith, you can trade your spiritual poverty for his riches and find yourself under the refuge of his wings. I'll conclude with a quote from David Strain once again. The same God who made provision for the orphans and the widows and the sojourners to glean in Israel's fields has made provision for you in his son Jesus Christ. No one who ever came in faith to Christ empty went away empty still. Let's pray.